Hello and welcome to BCP, Being Crisis Prepared, the business contributor podcast from Inveroid Crisis Management, hosted today by Matthew Warner and Toby Ingram, and joined by Lucinda Brown. Today, the first thing that I'd like to talk about in our topics is going to be protests. And I don't just mean protests as in uh, a quick summary of the news, but protests in why is that important for us? We've got protests ranging from Extinction Rebellion, historically uh, happening in April. Uh, Even on the 17th of April, there was talk of it already costing £12 million to businesses in London. They're already advertising uh, openly sourced that disrupting Heathrow for a week at the start of July. And then you move on to other types of protests, such as Donald Trump uh, in the news, and even disruption through mass participation, such as the Liverpool um, fans coming out in their in mass to support the, the team when they came back from the European Championships. Dancing on buses. All of that has potential to disrupt your business, and yet all of it is predictable. And therefore, with good horizon scanning, we should be able to identify that that is going to happen and put in plans in place so that your staff can work from home. You change the destination of, of a supply delivery or you change the timing so that it comes in early in the morning or late at night to make sure that that disruptive event has a minimal impact on your business. That's the first piece from the news. Toby. Yeah, moving on to uh, 5G. Um, and this is one that you'll know is running and running, and it's um, one of the high news items in the US-China trade war. Um, and it's a, it's a fascinating uh, case study in uh, a clash of cultures which affects business. It's foreseeable, but you don't really know what is coming. So just as a, um, uh, as a quick background, uh, 1G was wireless phone calls. 2G was texting, 3G was web browsing, and 4G was wireless video streaming. Uh, 5G is different to everything. For one thing, data is going to move about 100 times faster, but it also handles a lot more data with lower lag times than ever before. It will be a lot more expensive, but it's basically machine-to-machine communication, so the Internet of Things. And um, the way to imagine it is that uh, your fridge will communicate to your car and say you're in a 30-mile-an-hour zone, you're going at 34 and your car will reply, yeah, but you haven't ordered any milk, so the <laughs> obvious sucks to you. Um, that's what 5G is about. And obviously, the, um, uh, the, it's the center of the US-China trade war because um, the US is concerned that allowing Huawei equipment into the guts of global 5G networks could allow Beijing to access streams of data um, and, in theory, could allow... Uh, China to take down the US electrical grid. If How has that affected the UK though? Because wasn't there an article, there was something in, um, in, on the news and with politics that when we, at the government, said they were going to work with, I can't even pronounce it, Huawei, Huawei. Um, to help do our 5G. So how is that affecting the UK, not just the US? Well, the, the US is very keen that the UK does not enter that deal. Um, partly because uh, Huawei quite rightly say that they uh, do not indulge in spying activities. They don't. They don't go and look for data, but they are legally bound to pass any data they come across back to the Chinese government. So there's a really fine line there. Um, And um, the US has threatened to cut the UK off from intelligence sharing if we go into 
uh, a deal with Huawei. So that's how it affects the UK. Okay. Okay. So it's okay. like a trade thing. So, so that whole um, topic of 5G, I think, is going to run and run for a little bit more. Mm. And we are recording this uh, on Monday the 3rd of June, the day that the state visit starts. And I'm sure there'll be much more of that in the news um, yes. to come. And it will be interesting to see how either that is disruptive just because it's new technology or it's disruptive because parts of the world aren't getting the same technology that other parts have and it, it, it slows down that, that rollout. So it's going to be interesting to watch that one, I think, over the months ahead. And we're told by the news channels that it is on the agenda for um, President Trump to speak to the Prime Minister yeah. about. Um, and it's part of a much wider uh, uh, or a much larger AI, artificial intelligence, cold war between effectively China and America, so East and yeah. West, which we can discuss. Which, which actually, that, that, that starts the third of our, our news topics, actually. I was taken by the whole issue of tariffs. And again, recent news article talking about uh, China suffering a 10% drop on like-for-like -like, um, trade with the US. 10% uh, is a big drop. Um, and that, that impact of tariffs, you go, oh, that's China, America, it doesn't really impact on, on the rest of the world. Well, it does, because as soon as you start to say, well, where do we get our goods and services from? You know, what parts of do we need to import to be able to build our, our, our own goods and services? That, that supply chain of goods, not everything comes direct from China to the UK or China to, to wherever your company is, uh, but if it has a foot that goes through the US in that manufacturing chain, it's become more difficult, it slows everything down. And then you then add in Mexico as well, um, talks of 5% and growing, uh, that, that issue of of tariffs, I think is it doesn't matter whether it's a Trump issue or whether it's a Brexit issue. Introducing tariffs into trade is again part of that horizon scanning. If you can't predict it, then you can't work out how to overcome that. Um, and if you're not careful, you end up with either making a loss because you struck a contract at a price that then suddenly changes, um, or alternatively, you're not competitive with your. Um, in the market because you're pricing thinking that you're about to get a tariff and then it doesn't materialize and everyone else is offering a cheaper price and so on so i think business disruption through tariffs is going to again be a feature of the the next 12 months i think um certainly no matter what one's view on brexit that has uncertainty are we wto rules or not and so on um which is probably why the cbi and others are desperately seeking for some form of clarity. And of course the, the, the US's economic strength uh, was built on the globalization of supply chains and maximizing efficiency. So look at the iPhone designed by Apple in California but assembled in China because that's how you got efficiency into a mass market. So in, in many ways um, the current trade war is countercultural uh, to to America. So and placing um, Huawei, which is a Chinese telecommunications giant on the US Commerce Department entity list, effectively bans the company from buying any technology in the US. And the Chinese have now retaliated by saying, well, we're going to create our own um, entity list. Um, and um, they've already hit back as, at FedEx, as you know, and have accused FedEx of diverting some packages destined for Huawei through its US headquarters instead of directly to the customer. Um, and they've so dealt they just, are they just kind of 
firing back at each other that, well, I, you're I, going to intercept our data, so we're going to intercept your packages? Or is that the accusation on each side? I think there's an element of both in there, Lucinda. That, and, but what China's demonstrating is it does have the ability to hit back. And interestingly, if you read into this, they are hitting back at Trump-supporting states, not just the US as a whole. So they're right. highly targeted and they're very intelligent. So it's very political. Um, and of course, it's coming up to election year. Trump, uh, President Trump um, sells himself as the great deal maker. So he's going to want to, there will be an element uh, that, in him that wants to um, scale down this trade war and, and revert to the American tradition of globalized supply chains. But of course, he can't be seen as soft on the Chinese in, a, in an election year or overly soft on the Chinese. So I think he's trading he's It's going to be an interesting one to keep there. watching, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I think the, the other um, story that came up, if I remember rightly, was the whole Harley-Davidson um, saga that Harley-Davidson had moved their production out to Mexico and now we've got tariffs, um, tariffs on goods imported from Mexico. So And they're so, going to have to get through a wall. How do you get uh, Harley-Davidson through a wall? And this global market oh. is... Uh, <laughs> That's the world we now live in, and it's going to be difficult uh, just in those couple of examples. Mm. And as I say, from a UK perspective, uh, whether you think Brexit is, is a good thing or not, it's a, it, it it's, will create that uncertainty. There's going to be change. Um, looking at one or two um, smaller um, items in, in time uh, frame, anyway, uh, Another thing that we've picked up recently on the news as an example of business continuity is uh, the NHS are recruiting nurses or at the moment through or about to start using Mumsnet social media site. And it struck me that that was a good story uh, to illustrate that we have to be clever in where we find our, our staff from. Um, and that also applies to creating a pool of people for in the event of an emergency, where do you find your staff from? If you always go to where you've always got, you always get what you always got. Um, and an emergency means that we can't continue doing things in that way. We have to find novel ways to reach out and, and bring in staff. And so that, that is an example of a novel approach. And there will be other examples of, in an emergency, where can I find additional telephone responders um, It'll be interesting to see how that plays out because it does feel like that's quite a good target to go. I think it's a great target. Let's go. Yeah. Let's yeah. go straight to the moms that are worried about their kids and making sure there's enough yeah. care and there's enough nurses and there's enough people to to kind of yeah. to look uh, after them. So they're going to be worried about it. So they've got a really vested interest. It'll be interesting to see what results they get through from it. No, I think it's a good example um, all round, and and you know, obviously, hopefully, the the NHS will benefit from it, as will the. Um, the mums on mums net, um, but if that's a way of creating additional resilience in an organisation of thinking laterally and using social media, uh, that's a good thing. Um, and the last one I've thrown in. Um, so I am totally not a uh, business continuity professional, um, and I'm just sort of listening in, going, "What? What are you talking about?" Um, and last month, when we were talking about putting um, exercises in place and understand and testing and validating things, um, late I think it was literally either within that week or a day or so later, I noticed that the European Space Agency was doing an active exercise in um, what happens if an asteroid strike was about to hit Earth, and they released press releases, they had video fake video footage of what was happening, and they were running this whole exercise through the European Space Agency. 
and then what that would look like if they carried those messages out on social media. And it was really interesting to watch. Um, so from a kind of a layman's term view, it seemed like a really interesting case study. No, great. Let's, uh, let's, can we put a link of that onto the yeah, website? Yeah, we can, we can get a link of how they um, will link to the social media channels. I'm sure they'll have done a case study as well that we can pop yeah. a link up to. So, so if you're listening to this and interested in more about the European Space Agency exercise and how that went and the sort of crisis comms that they did... A, an, an um, example of that validation if you're a layman like me. Yep, yep. please have a look at the website, uh, find the podcast section and we'll put a link to that on, on the website. Thank you. That's, that's five things that we picked up from the news in the last month. There will be dozens, if not hundreds of others. <laughs> if you've got something that's interesting for you, why not send us a note at bcp at and we can talk about it in the weeks to come. Uh, moving on to our, our next area. Some of our, our listeners from last time will remember that we, we like to talk about resilience rants, and this is where you, the listener, has a chance to email in and give us your rant. And we will then either share it as a good rant, or we will explain why perhaps you shouldn't be ranting on that topic. Um, one of our listeners... Um, or join in the rant. <laughs> well, we would love to join in the rant, because there are, there are issues that we, we all know that are... Uh, most organisations could do better, or jargon that doesn't make sense and so on. So that's what we're trying to bust. Um, but we'll start with the resilient rant. And the one today that we've kind of been sent in is about log keeping. And the listener was more interested in why is it that this most simple activity is one of the things that is most difficult to do during an exercise. Uh, and therefore, if you don't practice it in the exercise, presumably you're not, you don't create the muscle memory and it won't happen during an emergency. So can I jump in on a layman? Um, can I have some context around what log keeping means? Because for me, log keeping, log keeping would be like, I, I almost associate it with like finance and keeping notes of what I've spent. But that's yeah, probably so you're not, not. You're not far off, Lucinda. Um, first of all, a little bit of history for you. Oh, uh, why do you call it a log? Well, um, in the days of sailing ships, wooden sailing ships, um, you needed to work out how fast you were going to work out where you were. So what you used to do is throw a big log off the back of the boat with a rope attached to it, and the rope had knots in it. Uh -huh. Guess where you get the word knots from in terms of <laughs> maritime movement. And uh, as the rope paid out behind you, you had a, had a watch in one hand, and you worked out how many knots of rope went off the back of the boat in a given time, usually a minute or ten minutes. Um, and then the log was very cleverly designed because when you did something, you twitched the rope, the log would turn so it was no longer broadside on, it was then front on and you could pull it back in. Oh. And, that's, and somebody was doing that pretty much 24-7 because no GPS, you had to know how far you had gone in a given amount of time and look at the chart. So keeping the log, and it was known as a cast of the log, that's where you get log keeping from because people then wrote down on a, on a blackboard. Okay, so log keeping these days is the recording of every critical decision and every critical piece of information that come that you decisions that you take or critical information that comes in or goes out during a crisis or an emergency. And why why do you need to keep a record? Because um, it's about personal corporate survival. The best example and the one that Matthew often quotes is um, Cressida Dick, who's now the Commissioner of Metropolitan Police, but she was the officer in charge of the incident when, very unfortunately, tragically, John Charles de Menendez was mistakenly shot on the underground, a Brazilian student, um, and uh, sorry, Brazilian tourist. Um, so uh, 
After that incident had finished, when, as you can imagine, tensions were running extremely high, Cressida Dick, by, by all accounts, said, everybody leave me alone for three hours, I'm going to speak uh, uh, into a dictaphone and somebody else is going to manually record every single thing that happened in that incident so that there is a record. So it's, a, it's like a list of, of all the key actions Absolutely. and decisions that were taken. Uh, and what information she had at the time she took the decision and the action. And um, it is, again, you know, um, there's no like room to this, but this, this is what... a meeting, but on a crazy on a, scale. Writ large, yeah. Minutes of a meeting on steroids, or a record of a decision on steroids. That is uh, one of the things that um, possibly enabled her to survive, <laughs> her career to survive. So it, it is, um, and of course, in any after-action review of any incident, crisis, emergency, any training element, um, you feel much more comfortable if you're able to say, yes, I took that decision. The information that I had at the time was this, and here is a record of me having that information. So you can tell me my decision was wrong if you like, brackets, you weren't there, so you don't really know. But um, what is not beyond, what is now beyond doubt is that that was the information set I had. Because it's so easy for people to second guess you in retrospect. There's a lot of Monday morning quarterbacks out yeah, there. Yeah, hindsight's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, but, the, but therefore, the other part of that balance is in order to capture that's the information I had at that time, you need to capture that information so that you can then compare what the decision log is. Chris and Dick, in that example, yeah. I made these decisions because this is the information I had at the time mm -hmm. against the official log of what information did you have at the time. So all right. the phone calls that come in, all the radio messages have to be um, distilled into a nowadays digital format that mm -hmm. says phone call this time from person X to person Y. This was what was said. Signature of the person who's written it in its simplest form. That would be a log. And traditionally, we then write a log for each phone call that comes in or each radio message that you receive that, that summarizes what it was. And ideally, you take the top copy and you pass it to the log keeper or the watch keeper or the recorder or the situations unit um, in a larger scale. Uh, one copy you keep yourself so that in years to come, if it is an investigation, you've got, you've your, got own your own evidence, evidence rather than the, the evidence that you gave to the, the organization you were working with. And as it's going from your desk in the response towards the log keeper, it should go through the crisis manager or the team leader so that he or she can initial it to say that they've at least seen it before it then goes into a pile to get typed up. Um, so that all sounds room. like it should be common sense, but there's a lot of paths that that could go wrong, yeah. isn't it? And in a fast moving response, and as an exercise, we traditionally focus on the, um, the, the activation phase, and that first critical couple of hours of saving lives, putting out fires, and so on, your notifications to stakeholders, etc., etc., and that is the manic period of any mm -hmm. response. And therefore, naturally, you're answering lots of phones, making lots of phone calls, and your go, priority go, 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 and you you forget. Well, no one's priority. The, the time it takes to actually either take it down uh, to record it whilst the phone call is happening. That's really difficult. Mm -hmm. Or to say, right, 30 seconds later, I need to now write what that was. And so the habit that people get into is a scribbled note in a notebook, which then that whole notebook becomes part of the documentary evidence in the investigation. 
So if you've used a notebook that's also got on the back page all your passwords and so on, that goes into the investigation. And you know, there's so a whole so saga. That you can't forget. Yeah, if, if anyone listening, please do not use your own notebook. Please use the log sheets. One log sheet for one message. Rip the top sheet off, give it to the log keeper, keep the set of the copy, start writing out the. That, that, the that's like carbon things, though, isn't it? Yeah. You've got top copies. So, how many people have carbon notepads now? Any organisation that's doing this should create a set. So they should have pad them. of log sheets. Yeah. And how do you know which bits of information are logs and which bits which bits of information should be logged and which bits shouldn't? If in doubt, log, log it. it. And it's a it, it's in some ways a function of experience and training. If you, if you know your industry, you know your sector. Um, then even then then the log keeper will know. I, I absolutely need to note that down, and that one probably not important. Yeah. So it's, a, it's, a, it's largely a function of, of... And so in that rant example, is the rant why do we have to do log keeping or is the rant why are we not better at log keeping? The rant is why are we not better at it. Right. And, and it is such a basic, basic tool uh, that I think people, oh, that's so easy, I'm bound to be able to do that on the day and focus on the other bits that are more mm-hmm. mentally challenging. And the danger is that actually... You can't do both at once. Because you haven't practised doing both at once, when the incident happens... You'll be so swamped with the real, uh, you're adding the stress, the fatigue, the emotion, that you certainly won't go, oh, let me reach for that log sheet because you haven't got the muscle memory to do it. So, you know, the exercise has to mirror the, the reality as much as you can. Um, okay. But we will move on. That was Resilient Rant. Thank you very much indeed for that. If you've got any comments about log keeping uh, and writing the logs, please send them in bcp at inveroy.com. Uh, Last month, we spoke about two of the things that uh, Toby and I would be doing over the coming month that we've just had. Uh, We we were looking forward to working with a uh, wind energy company, and also I was going to be working with uh, a company uh, crisis management team and their engagement of the board. Um, Toby, how was the wind farm? Wind farm was, well, it was blowy, um, (laughs) but um, fascinating. And I think the thing that uh, sticks in the mind... Uh, about it is the environmental impacts and the environmental um, dynamics on investments and performance etc. So um, wind farms are generally on the right side of the environmental divide although there are um, some uh, environmental issues with them so um, groups such as the KFS Independent Wind Farm Forum are quite vocal in saying that there are many uh, wind turbines now that are operating beyond their design capacity. So they've been run on beyond their design life, okay. or they're running too fast, or yeah. they're trying to produce too much power. Um, some planning authorities don't allow warning lights on turbine blades because they disturb residents, and that's a hazard for aircraft. So you're in a little bit of a cleft stick there. But largely, um, wind farms are on the, um, as I say, the right side of the environmental divide, principally because they're not oil and gas companies, you know, they're renewables, which is, yep. which, which, which is fine. Um, but their environmental, social and governance performance is often... Um, a factor in how heavily people invest in those companies. So JP Morgan uh, own a number of renewable energy firms and they espouse the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark. Um, And all of the companies that they own are encouraged, oblique directed, to meet those um, sustainability benchmarks for the very simple and very good reason that a higher benchmark score equals heavier investment. 
Um, so the real estate sustainability benchmarks focus on environmental, social and governance performance and they delve right down into, for instance, um, how many um, environmental objectives are in individuals' job specs. And if wow. there aren't enough, then you get a lower score. Lower score equals lower investment. So based on the individuals? So they base their... Sorry, I might have just completely misunderstood this. You weren't listening, were you? The listening? investment is based on... In, it can be based on individuals within the business. A um, combination of factors, one of which could be... Right. It, it's, so they'll look at the business and they will say, how many environmental, social objectives are in this person's job spec? So it's not okay. necessarily the performance, it's how, it how much importance do they place on ESG, environmental, social governance. Um, and um, be, because there's a pattern emerging, for instance, of activist shareholders finding resolutions against corporations, particularly major energy companies, demanding increased transparency around things like uh, climate change risks, um, environmental, social governance, um, etc. And it's now considered industry best practice that organisations consider um, climate change, environmental factors, social factors in the context of their strategic and operational risk management, risk being opportunity as well as threat. So it, I found it a really interesting wow. dynamic yeah. that um, uh, people are very now prepared to challenge anybody to say, okay, I understand you're making money, I understand you're making energy, but what about your impact on the environment? What Random about question that you might not be able to answer. What is the carbon footprint of creating the wind turbines in the first place? I can't answer that. I just just wondered, just in that in that collective of yes, we are creating energy, we are developing energy by a source that is already existing. But what do you have to do to get there? But I think the, that's a bigger question. It's not but, for now, and it's also a question of in comparison to the other types of energy mm. production that you have, you know, a nuclear power station. Yeah, there's um, a lot of builds going on there as well, isn't there? Oil and gas. <laughs> Um, you development platforms, platforms. You know, there is no easy way to make energy mm. and therefore creating a wind turbine and moving it to the right location which okay may involve tracks and in, in, you know, going in and so is on that all but if it lasts for 50 years yeah. then you, that's, that's mm. quite a small footprint for the power that's going to generate sorry sufficient power to, to generate if it does last for 50 tower. years though uh, I think, sorry the, the infrastructure and, and I think the average build is something like 25 years and then they get upgraded for um, a bit like triggers broom and any fools and horses you know it's the same broom uh, but three well, different heads and five different handles different turbine, it's, yeah. it's you know, constantly being evolved okay. but no so that, that's you know, the fact that now we've got resilience people often say how or what's the, what's the financial benefit of doing this emergency response how do you measure it if you don't have an emergency you know, it, it's difficult to, to put a figure against it but from that example, it sounds as though JP Morgan is saying, no, no, because of the, the changing world that we live in and the social responsibility aspect, that has a, a benefit that we are now putting some metrics around to, to create the better you are at doing this, the more likely you are to, to attract investment and yes. therefore the better that is for us as the, the owner of the company. And I guess that links back to the piece we were talking about at the start in the news about Extinction Rebellion and mm. protests. If you're demonstrating to your interested parties that you're doing everything you can to, to be socially responsible, you are less likely to be the target of those disruptive events um, 
in the first place. So it's, it's again, it's a dual win-win. If you can demonstrate that you are uh, resilient, yeah. that's got to be a good thing. Mm-hmm. And part of that is, um, they, if, if you're going through that benchmarking process, they'll look at how much um, environmental social governance training do you do. And if the answer is none, well, guess what? You score a big fat nul point. Um, whereas having an emergency response plan gets you a tick, having trained against the plan gets you a tick, um, because obviously the better you are in those areas, the less likely you are to have an adverse impact on the environment, um, particularly if you're dealing with uh, high pollution potential, so oil and gas. Um, and yeah, so I think you're absolutely right, Matthew, that um, the the atmosphere, the environment is now moving more towards people only want to invest in companies they feel comfortable with and this is one way that you can make a, an investor feel comfortable with you yeah. is to demonstrate genuine environmental responsibility. So it's not a tick box exercise, it's not a we've looked at the plan, we've changed the data, we've put it back on the shelf. They will say, right, how much training have you done? Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, a, a fascinating day with Winfrons. Well, I... I was going to talk about uh, the role of the board in a crisis, and that perhaps links in. You know, attended a uh, an exercise that we ran in London for a crisis management team that um, engaged with their board to, to to practice that link between the two. And I think the thing that I took away from that experience was that if you think the board's role, and I simplify it massively, but the board's role is to ensure the stakeholder. Um, interests, in particular shareholders, you know, and return on your value of that investment, um, they've selected the CEO of that company probably and backed him or her. They don't necessarily back or select the crisis manager. Manager, And that link of how does that, that work is, was quite interesting dynamic. Um, but that crisis manager is at that top level is looking about the survivability of the company, which is exactly what the board is doing as well. So that works really well. And it's all about that reputation piece uh, and the legal crossover of... So is a crisis manager on the board or is a crisis manager not? Crisis manager is probably going to be one of... CEO, COO, Okay, so the crisis manager could be, is a... a, is a role within another role, Correct. not an actual but, role. But you don't always say that it's got to be the chief executive because right. the chief executive may not actually be the ideal person because of their individual skill sets. Or alternatively, you want the CEO, chief executive, to be able to go to they um, need someone to go the to incident and be... be the face of the company yeah, and let someone running. else actually manage the, the response um, and the recovery activity. So, so there is that balance. And also... Chief executive can't do everything, so you, you sometimes have a, a, a combination. But I think what I took away with was that that close relationship between the whoever the crisis manager is going to be and the nominated person in the board has to be strong, and they have to understand where that balance lies. Um, and in the exercise that we saw, uh, the, the, the crisis comms piece was played brilliantly, it went up to the board and came back again with some comments, but largely approved within a couple of minutes, which enabled them to, to get that crisis communications out quickly and to be on the front foot as much as one is able to. And in how the likely is that to happen in the real world? Uh, well, that was the board were unknown. 
was So the board didn't know that you were doing an they exercise? They knew that there was going to be an exercise, they didn't know exactly when. Okay. Um, and so that, that was real test of the communications link and obviously caveated with for exercise and, and the other good cries. But once they were, were given the notification, we have had an incident, is this the best number to call you on? Can you make yourself available? We will need to call you back to authorise a press release probably in the next 30 minutes. It then worked really, really smoothly. And that starts to think of the benefit of the Interesting to see how smoothly that would run if you told them you were going to do an exercise at some point over the next month, but didn't tell them on which day. You know, like a, a spot, a proper spot check. Uh, just indeed, to see if the response would be that and, quick. And that's the same with all organisations, that, that people's diaries are so full that you have to book it in advance, but actually the real but if incident an actual doesn't incident wait until you're going to go in your diary, is yeah, it? Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and that is the balance that, that all organisations strike, is that the no-notice exercise is the, the gold-plated solution, but it tends to be that it's really difficult to do. Um, to schedule it. I think, anyway. I think we, um, you're pointing at the screen. Should I, should I be quiet? Uh, I think we're, uh, we're moving on. Um, conscious that our listeners' time is precious, and that, that's 33 minutes. So uh, in the weeks to come, we're really conscious that we want guests to come on and, and be part of this. Um, we've had a great response from a variety of guests to the first podcast, so please do keep an eye out for an announcement of uh, who... Our next guest is going to be in the months to come. Um, other events coming up. Inveroy have signed up this month to attend the BCI World Conference in November in London. Um, we're very much looking forward to that. Uh, and if you're listening to this and would like to, to meet us for a coffee, please do let us know at bcp at inveroy.com. Uh, and finally, that brings us to the end of today's show. Uh, if you've had... If, sorry, if you have any resilience rants or listener questions that uh, you would like us to uh, air on the, the podcast, please do send them in to bcp at inroy.com. Thank you for listening to our podcast, BCP Being Crisis Prepared, the business continuity podcast from Inroy Crisis Management.